So have you ever known a Debbie Downer, a wet, a wet blanket? Um, you know, what they say is true, <laughs> but it's not, you know, it's, it's just negative. It's just always negative, right? Uh, no one wants to be called a Doubting Thomas either, right? That's uh, not something you really want to be called. You, you, you know, the guy that never believes anything uh, is always sort of looking at the negative of the situation. However, just like Thomas, who that, for whom that term was coined, uh, our doubt can show us just how close we actually are to God, and uh, we can be transformed by Jesus in our state of doubtfulness. Christian maturity allows our doubt to be challenged by God's truth and God's faithfulness, right? So turn with me to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 28 on page 741 of your pew Bibles, if you want. And uh, this is the story of Doubting Thomas, right? Page 741, John chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 19. And it says this, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, exclamation point, right? So Thomas was one of the original 12 disciples, and we find uh, quotations of Thomas throughout the Gospels. Uh, when Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, um, he was warned by the disciples that the Jews were trying to kill him or wanted to stone him in John chapter 11. And Thomas interpreted Jesus going to be with uh, the deceased Lazarus as a part of his plan to restore the kingdom of God. Um, so the zealous Thomas at that moment said this. He said, let us go, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us also go that we may die with him. So it was evident that before all, you know, before the, uh, the crucifixion, that, that Thomas believed in Jesus as the Messiah, right? To, ex to the extent of willing martyrdom, right? Very contrary to his unfortunate later moniker uh, of doubting Thomas, right? In actuality, uh, what we see when we really look at his life, that he wasn't a disciple who was lukewarm or skeptical. Usually, he had a close relationship with Jesus, and he would follow him, it would seem, to the very end. So why the change now? Why so doubtful? We can only imagine for a guy like Thomas that uh, 
what it, what it meant to walk with Jesus, to follow Jesus for those, those few years, to walk with him for, for three years, seeing all the miraculous signs that, that were prophesied about the Messiah and fulfilled in Jesus and to hear his words of hope and, and peace and to, to place his hope in him. Finally, right, finally something was happening in his mundane, ordinary life. He was part of something great, something life-changing. And for three years, everything was looking up, and then it all came crashing to a halt at the cross. To see his hope so brutally tortured and murdered, hanging on that tree, right, The depiction, if you've ever seen the movie Passion of the Christ, was probably not too far off um, as it happened. Jesus was beaten and bloodied, scourged by whipping, a crown of thorns pressed down on his head, um, his flesh flayed open, proof of his death by a spear to the side, and then a burial in a solid sealed tomb for three days. No one could have survived, right? All your dreams, all your hopes crushed in one afternoon after years of so much wonder and so much promise, now locked away forever in death behind a giant unmovable stone. That must have been devastating and depression and disillusionment must have settled on his soul. It's no wonder Thomas said, I, I got to see it. I got to touch these wounds or I will not believe, right? Standing on the other side of the story, if you're not really thinking too deeply about it, uh, the statement could seem petulant, like childlike. I won't believe, you know? But logically, there would be no reason to believe such an outlandish story, even from your good friends, although Jesus had said that this would happen, right? Jesus had told him that this would happen himself. And even after Thomas witnessed himself, Lazarus, being raised from the dead after four days in the tomb, Christ's resurrection still wouldn't be believable until you saw it yourself, right? I get Thomas. I understand him. And I also want to add that I do not think that he had given up all hope. Why? Why would I say that? Well, because he was still there right? He was still there. He was still gathering at the table with all the other disciples. He had not cut and run. He hadn't just given up and walked away and said, oh, it was a good three years. I'm done. I'm out of here. He was actually what we've been saying he was doing. He was, he was walking in his doubt as a believer, not as a skeptic, right? He knew there was something to all this, although he couldn't accept it until he saw it. And when doubt settles on our soul, it is important to remember uh, that we need to stay in the room. We need to keep going. We don't, we don't give up. We process in the, in, in, in the context of the community of believers. We give God the chance, right? Right? He must have wandered the streets in his own thoughts, recalling all the moments with Jesus, thinking through it, wondering how it all could have been so real and so wonderful. And then why did it have to end this way? I would have done that. He was still in the game. 
He was still there. But what he did not do, and this is what we can learn from him, is he did not listen intently to Jesus' words, right? Jesus had said back in Matthew uh, 16, 21, that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. When we look at the transfiguration moment, this passage has been sticking in my heart for weeks now. Uh, In Matthew 17, God speaks to Peter, James, and John. At that moment, he says, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him, right? Thomas, though, like so many of us, needed to work on his listening skills, right? If if he had, he would have heard that last sort of line from Matthew 16, 21. Jesus had spoken, and on the third day, I will be raised to life. Possibly the simple act of listening and believing, even in your doubt, would have made the difference. But it's as if he had not even heard that last phrase that Jesus uttered, right? Right? Many times God speaks something into our hearts uh, and, and we just can't see it yet. We can't see the manifestation of it yet. It hasn't come about yet. But we have to simply listen and simply be obedient and simply be patient in our waiting on the Lord. It's unfortunate that he's labeled Doubting Thomas. He's not called that in the Bible, by the way. <laughs> it's a label that we placed on him and it's kind of unfair because they could call me Doubting Jason, right? Doubting Natalie, Doubting Sherry, right? All of us could be called that. How many of us would have done the same thing that he did? Wouldn't we have given up all hope at the crucifixion? I think I would have. You know, not listening ourselves, you know, we of little faith kind of do this all the time. And we got to understand how heartbroken Thomas probably was at the crucifixion. And by the way, the, the disciples weren't any less doubting than him. After Jesus' death, they were hiding and they had their doors locked for the fears of the Jews. They were, they were, they were scared. They, they, didn't, they weren't doing anything great. They thought they were going to be next, right? It was only after Jesus appeared to them that they believed as well, right? They had to see it. But even in his doubtful moment, He was close to Jesus, and he didn't even realize it. And then Jesus came and stood before him and did just exactly what he had said. Stick your finger here. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Put your hand there. Oh, wouldn't that be a great moment? Oh, and at that moment, we see Thomas' zeal is restored. My Lord, my God, exclamation point he's back to his old self right he's back to his old self if he doubted before he didn't now right Jesus took the time to guide his hands into his wounds and this and he saw that this was a physical resurrection Jesus was alive just as he had predicted and just as he had promised and Thomas makes the first public profession of Jesus as both Lord and God, right there. 
So the once zealous, later doubtful, then zealous again Thomas, if you don't know it, went on to evangelize Eastern Asia. And it's, it's well known in church history, for he's, he's known for bringing the gospel to India, you know, during the first century. Some say he got as far as China and maybe even Indonesia, or maybe just his influence got there, I don't know. But many Indian Christians these days bear his name as the patron saint of India. This is one of the greatest testaments right here to the veracity of the scriptures and of the truth of the biblical account. That, that these disciples, scared to death, you know, hiding in one minute, turn around after their encounter with Christ and give their lives in very brutal ways for something that they saw with their own eyes and believed in as a result. The res resurrection and later ascension of Christ. Thomas, ironically, had said, and who knows if this is actually true, that he died by a spear to the same spot that uh, he had touched Jesus' wounds. Uh, and that was at the hands of angry Hindus uh, who were upset that he had bring, been bringing so many people to Christ. And as all Christians are, you know, Thomas was called to spread the gospel to all nations or all people groups, all ethnic groups, right? We see that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the great commission that is our calling, all of us as Christians. And, and seeing Jesus' resurrection ignited that in him, ignited that passion in, 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 to be obedient to that calling, which took him very far. Peter and Paul, it said, brought the gospel to Greece and Rome. Thomas it was said to have, have brought it eastwards as far as India and maybe even farther. And the point I'm making is he was no slouch. No slouch at all. The churches of Malankara, India, traced their roots back to Thomas, who, according to local tradition, arrived on the Malabar coast in A.D. 52. He apparently spent 20 years there in that region, proclaiming Christ uh, to people very unlike himself and dying there for the sake of Jesus, whom he was 100% convinced was the hope of salvation for the world because he had seen him and he had touched those wounds. No one gives their life for lies or false narratives. None of these guys were getting rich off this story at all, right? Thomas was changed from doubtful to zealous again because he had witnessed the, the resurrected Jesus. That's significant. It's been said that through St. Thomas, the heir of idolatry vanished from India. Through St. Thomas, the Chinese and Ethiopians were, were converted to the truth. Through St. Thomas, they accepted the sacrament of baptism and the adoption of sons. Through St. Thomas, they believed and confessed the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the, and, and the Father. Through St. Thomas, they preserved the accepted faith of one God. Through St. Thomas, the life-giving splendors rose in all of India. Through St. Thomas, the kingdom of heaven took wing and ascended to China. That's a great life's work. Thomas is historical proof that Jesus can handle our doubt, right? And that he will meet us in our doubt unexpectedly and lead us by the hand through it. 
In his book on questions and answers in the Christian faith, one theologian writes, the reflective Christian is one who questions what they believe while continuing to believe what they're questioning. Let me say that twice. The reflective Christian is one who questions what they believe while continuing to believe what they're questioning. That's maturity, right? Thomas seems to maybe have done this. It's okay to believe while living with your questions. There's nothing wrong with that. To allow our doubts to be challenged by God's truth and God's faithfulness. To face our doubts as believers who just have a little bit more to learn, who still have to walk this thing out in life, and not as just sort of cynical skeptics trying to redefine and reinterpret (coughs) due to our intellectual or emotional or moral doubt. Remember, we had said a few weeks ago that intellectual doubt is when our minds are unsure whether or not the teachings of Christianity are true. It's an intellectual argument in us, right? And I want to say that there are many convincing intellectual arguments and proof to the veracity of the Christian faith available. There are many books. I've got some here, you know, The Case for Christ is a good book by Lee Strobel. There's Fabricating Jesus, kind of exploring some of the the misinformation that's coming out in the last hundred years or so, um, things like that. You know, but uh, these these jeans kind of, you ever have a pair of jeans or something where your zipper just goes down? Just, if, if, if you see that, just go like this, all right? And I'll... <laughs> I probably shouldn't wear them anymore, but, <laughs> but um, you know, uh, there are a lot of good books and a lot of good, you know, other writings on the trustworthiness of the Christian account, right? Archaeology and textual criticism really help us. Uh, but the story of Christ isn't something that someone can just put in a test tube and do a litmus test. And, you know, it, it just doesn't work that way. It's not that kind of thing, It's kind of stupid to even ask that question. It's not scientifically verifiable, just as any historical story is not really that verifiable. But it's shown to be historically, archaeologically, geographically, and textually true and trustworthy from many, many different resources, Christian and non-Christian alike. Don't believe the hype. For instance, you believe Shakespeare existed, right? And he wrote plays because you have his plays with his name on them. Great, wonderful. You've been told that he lived and wrote and died, and he was brilliant. That's great. But even if you could dig his body up and do a DNA test on it, you can't prove any of that because it's not scientifically verifiable in that way. Yet, we don't question him and his writings, do we? Not at all. Even when we have much uh, less trustworthiness in the veracity of, of his writings than we do of the scriptures. Some say Shakespeare couldn't even put together a sentence. I don't know. I don't care about that. Good plays, though, right? The sciences of archaeology and geography and history and textual criticism all attest to the scriptures to a very great degree more so than any other ancient document out there. More so than any other ancient document out there. 
So let me just say this politely. If you are struggling with intellectual doubt, may I just suggest that you have not done your homework. You have not done your homework. There are so many resources out there, and there, there'll, there'll be a link to some in this sermon if you want to download it tomorrow. But we have copies of manuscripts throughout history. These copies show the Bible has been translated accurately despite the common skeptical claims that the Bible has often been changed throughout the centuries. The physical evidence speaks to the contrary. It really does. The New Testament records are incredibly accurate. There are minor differences in the manuscripts, and Christians have always been honest about these, these variants, but none of these variants really impact or change the key Christian beliefs or claims. They really don't. You'll even see notes in your printed Bible of this wasn't in the original manuscript, things like that. Other physical evidence includes archaeological finds, which I've stated a few of those in past sermons, but the Archaeological Study Bible, if you want to spend the money to get that, presents many notes and sort of articles documenting how, how archaeology again and again and again and over and over again has proven the Bible corresponds to historical reality. It's the one book they have on every archaeological dig in the Middle East. There are other kinds of evidence which speak to the Bible's veracity, and those have to do with internal consistency and coherence, right? Although the Bible was written over many centuries by different writers, the message that, that it contains, are, all the messages that it contains are coherent and consistent throughout. And I, I, I'm 55, I was 55 this past Thursday. Yeah, happy birthday, thank you. But I, you know, I, I have, I've been doing this for a long time, right? I've been preaching since I was 21 years old. And I'm 55 now, and I am more solidly, I, I, I just feel grounded even more now than I ever did back then. And I was pretty arrogant back then. Maybe I am still, I don't know. But um, The Bible presents a coherent theology and worldview, presenting its material consistency from, consistently from beginning to end. Moreover, the Christian worldview, is, it is robust, it is, it's reasonable, and it's grounded in history. It really is. If you can show that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, present an accurate record of the life and ministry of Jesus, then Jesus himself becomes an argument in support of the truth of the Bible. And if the Bible is shown to be reliable, this line of reasoning, reasoning really isn't circular, but it is actually rational. It makes sense. In other words, the Bible records about all, all these statements about Jesus, including what he says about God, what he says about human nature, and what he says about salvation, and all these different things, the Old Testament record, and, and, and all of these things can be trusted. What does Jesus say about God's word? He says a few things. He says the scripture cannot be broken in John 10, 35, speaking to the authority of the Bible. He, in Matthew 5.17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Meaning Jesus believed in and trusted the Old Testament law and prophets. 
He also said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God in Matthew 4, 4. So he believed God spoke through the Bible, right? He, he overtly uh, upheld belief in the Old Testament scriptures and stories, and he revered the Bible as holy and authoritative himself. Now, the cornerstone of Christian belief is the resurrection of Christ, right? Even Paul uh, admitted that the, if the resurrection didn't happen, then the Christian faith, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, is futile and you are still in your sins. I agree. <clears throat> in this sense, making a case for the truth of the scriptures or the cr- truth of the resurrection uh, also makes a case for the truth and cl- of Uh, the truth claims of Jesus, and in turn, the reliability and truth of the Bible. In reality, the intellectual doubt that is being cast on the Bible does not stand up to scrutiny. It does not at all. And those who do the homework can see that very clearly, and it strengthens your faith to do so. So read a book. Get, get, Get something in you, right? Now, emotional doubt, we said, is most often associated when, with pain, when Christianity doesn't, doesn't feel true or doesn't feel real, right? When we suffer or someone doesn't get healed or, or when evil happens or when Ukraine happens, right? doesn't feel right. Emotional doubt is difficult, but it helps to realize uh, that Jesus promised these things during this period of history right? That there is evil in the world, that sin does exist. And the Bible is very honest about these things. And there are reasons why these these realities exist right now, but they will not in the future. Answers don't come easily for emotional doubt. They really don't. It takes a slow bake over a long period of time to gain understanding in the scriptures walked out in a lifetime, embedded in them, in submission to the Holy Spirit and in community with other strong, caring believers. We oftentimes give up too soon. We really do. Now, moral doubt usually happens when we are tempted to disbelieve Christianity because we don't want it to be true, right? We don't want it to be true. We don't like what it says. We've looked at the Bible and the doctrines of Christianity through a cultural lens, through a, 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 like a, a, a modern narrative, and we allow the world to redefine what goodness and morality are, and who God is even, and instead of allowing himself to reveal himself, to define these things for us. Certainly there's uh, a push right now to redefine what love is to be something that it's really not, and then to elevate it above truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. No, it's not. Love without boundaries, accepting of anything which philosophically and practically just does not work. And we all know that down deep inside, but nobody wants to say it out loud sometimes. Remember, love without truth lies. Truth without love kills. That's a very important statement. Tattoo that on yourself if you're a tattooed person. Um, love without truth lies. Truth without love kills. And remember a couple weeks ago we said old is better than new. 
It really is. And there's really nothing new under the sun anyway. Ecclesiastes tells us that. If you've ever read through Ecclesiastes, you realize there's nothing new under the sun. There's really not. Thought patterns and worldviews and behavioral norms cycle, cycle, and cycle throughout history. Nothing is new. We only think that we're progressive because we don't know our history and we don't know the damage that these things do to other people in the past. And so we wouldn't do them if we could know that. If the scriptural account can be trusted, then we regard history as his story and that the creator always knows what is best for his creation, despite what culture tells us and despite even what our own hearts sometimes tell us. We might see our struggles and doubts as evidence of how far we are from God. Maybe that's how we feel, right? But those struggles and those doubts might in fact show just how close we actually are to Jesus. Just like Thomas, in our doubt, Jesus appears unexpectedly and we are transformed by him in that state of doubtfulness. If we stay in the game, exhibiting Christian maturity, right, which allows our doubts to be challenged by God's truth and God's faithfulness, walking them out as believers and not as cynical skeptics. Amen to that? The reflective Christian is the one who questions what they believe while continuing to believe what they're questioning. Amen to that. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We ask that you would, uh, this is the end, this is the last sermon in this series. We ask that you would just um, let the words that you want um, us to take home settle on our souls. Let them irritate us and wake us up. Let them bug us. Let them be uh, your words that we think about when we go to sleep at night, when we wake up in the morning, when we look at our spouse or our kids. We pray that you would make us mature. Christians that grow up as we grow old. And just really embrace you more and more and more and are unafraid to ask the difficult questions because we know you have the answers. We praise you that you love us so much, that you are so, so patient with us. Amen to that. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.